Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday the 28th of April. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. Morning, Tom. And on today's briefing, a modern fable where billionaires clash with everyday people and the people win. I think ultimately the fans have told the big owners there are limits to how far you can push us and this is it. Yeah, how the football fans defeated the billionaires' European Super League in just 48 hours. A very dramatic sports story today. Uh, That is the briefing. Uh, First, today's headlines. Australian Olympians and support staff have been moved forward in the vaccine queue so they'll all get the jab before going to the Tokyo Games in July. More than 2,000 athletes and staff will move into phase B of the vaccine rollout and be offered a dose of either the AstraZeneca or the Pfizer vaccine, depending on their age. The Australian Olympic Committee responded to the announcement from the federal government last night by saying there were hundreds of athletes and families relieved by the news. Yeah, and particularly given what's happening in Japan, where they're in the middle of a state of emergency, it's the third one uh, since last year. Uh, daily infections are now at more than 5,000. So it's um, it's coming down to the wire a bit, isn't it, Annika? You know, the games are just a few months away. Absolutely. And Japan isn't doing so well when you look at it compared to other countries and the vaccine rollout. Fewer than 2% of the population has actually received the jab. So it's understandable that the athletes would want to have it before getting on a plane. Yeah, it's a little bit surprising given how well organised Japan is and that it's an island country where they can really control their borders. All flights to and from India will be suspended, leaving around 9,000 Australians in limbo. This is a rapidly escalating situation. We need to ensure that the load in those quarantine facilities is manageable so we can take more people in down the track. That's the Prime Minister Scott Morrison announcing yesterday that all flights to and from India will be suspended until May 15. And that included a number of flights that were just about to leave. So yesterday we mentioned that there are also, as well as those 9,000 Australians, there were Around 30 um, elite cricketers and their staff still stuck there um, playing in the IPL. Annika, and that two of the players we talked about yesterday that were coming home, Kane Richardson and Adam Zampa, have now been stuck in transit in Mumbai. It's a tricky situation for those cricketers, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to know what you'd do. I think a lot of people over there really, really want to get home, but obviously they've missed that window now, so it's just about bunkering down. Look, the move is designed to take pressure off our hotel quarantine system, though. In the past week, the number of cases in quarantine in Australia has jumped from 90 to 143. Now, most of those cases are from India. We obviously have enormous sympathy for India at the moment. It's obviously a diabolical situation, uh, but it does put um, extreme pressure uh, on our systems. That's Mark McGowan, the WA Premier. Do you think the federal government have made the right decision here, Annika? Look, I hate to see any flights from any country blocked. I think it's um, just the wrong way to go. It sends a really bad message. But I also understand, you know, all our outbreaks here now are caused by hotel quarantine. There's not community transmission. So as long as we keep it out of hotel quarantine and manage that risk, which is what they're trying to do, then there is an argument to put them off for a few weeks. But I do hope this is short-lived because... Aussies and Indians who uh, have citizenship or residency in both countries should have the right to be able to move between both countries. 
Military bases in the Northern Territory will receive an upgrade to prepare for more war games with our allies. Prime Minister Scott Morrison will today announce $747 million to be spent on four bases around Darwin, according to News Corp. The upgrades will see training facilities and an airfield expanded to allow for more simulation war games with military partners, including the US. The announcement comes after the Home Affairs Department Secretary, Michael Pizzullo, warned that drums of war were beating and said Australia will have to prepare for conflict. Yeah, there seems to be a real rising temperature at the moment. I've heard that, you know, Kevin Rudd in the last few days is out calling for the the Darwin Harbour lease to be torn up. It was between, you know, Australia and a Chinese company. It only seems to be going one way, this rhetoric around the conflict with China. Yeah, it all seems to be centred around Taiwan as a potential hotspot too. China have made it fairly clear that they feel that that is their territory. Hopefully it doesn't come to a situation where we end up in wartime. And that's what the Prime Minister said yesterday. He said, if there's a peaceful way out of this, that's going to be what we favour. And a super pink moon has had people looking up to the sky around Australia overnight. Yeah, the larger than usual moon was caused by the moon being closer to Earth than usual which happens several times a year. And it's not actually literally pink, is it? No, it's called a pink moon, but the name has more of a meaning in the Northern Hemisphere where it's April, which means it's spring, and it's actually named after the first pink flowers of spring. And did you see it driving to work this morning? Yes, and you can still see it to about 7.45 on Wednesday morning because it's not going to set as early, so even people that get up late can still see it. All right, it's time to talk about the football competition that lasted less than 48 hours. Murad, thanks for joining us. To start with, do you support one of these football clubs? I do. I'm a Manchester United fan. Um, I was born in Manchester and my whole family are, but the more you report on stories like this, the less passionate you feel about the clubs that you once supported as a kid. This is Murad Ahmed. He's a journalist for the UK's Financial Times. Now, he's been closely following one of the biggest screw-ups in modern sport, an attempted European Football Super League. It was announced last Sunday and imploded within about 48 hours. So in this briefing, we're going to find out why. For those of us here in Australia who have no idea about the National Leagues or the European Champions League. For those of us who even still call it soccer, um, can you explain how the National Leagues and the Champion League works and why this Super League was so controversial? Imagine football, imagine sport as as a massive pyramid, which even the smallest teams can, by winning matches, steadily scale their way up and up and up and up. And towards the top of that are the national leagues. Say in England, it's the Premier League. In Spain, it's La Liga. In Italy, it's Serie A. And that's the top league of football clubs in the country. And if you do really well in that competition, in that league, you finish in the top four places, you get to play in a pan-continental competition in Europe called the Champions League. Over time, that's become the pinnacle of club football. Um, It's the trophy that all the best players in the world, like Cristiano Ronaldo at Juventus and formerly at Real Madrid and Lionel Messi at Barcelona, that's the trophy they all want to win. And the way to do that is you've got to perform well in your National League 
and then you qualify for this big competition at the end. So it is all about on-pitch performance. The better you do, the more chance you have to win the biggest prizes. And that's been working well, has it? Like, has that become really successful and really loved, that system? It's incredibly well loved. So well loved that, you know, people in China, Indonesia, the United States, yes, Australia, are all watching it from around the world. It's uh, European football is the home of the world's favourite sport. It's also where all the money is. The teams that uh, have performed really, really well in the Champions League, the current champions are Germany's Bayern Munich, but you know Real Madrid are strong performers in the past, Manchester United have been, um, and Barcelona. They also happen to be the richest clubs in the world. This is the biggest platform. The snag in the whole thing is that you've got to qualify for it every year. So you've got to keep doing well in your national league, you've got to do well in the Premier League or La Liga in Spain to qualify. And that is difficult. Those are also competitive competitions, so you can't guarantee your place in the big show. So you've given us great context about how much this means to people, not just in Europe, but around the world. But then came an idea to shake it up, which really didn't go so well. Can you tell us what happened next? 12 of uh, the biggest clubs in the world, uh, six in England, three in Spain and three in Italy, decided that they would set up something called the European Super League. The idea is that they would break away from everything that I was uh, describing, and they would set up their own competition. And it would be 20 teams. These 12 would be part of um, 15 teams who would permanently be in the competition year in, year out, without fail. They wouldn't have to qualify for it. They'd just be there. And the reason they would be there is because they are the biggest teams and apparently people around the world really, really want to watch games between them. You know, they don't want to see the big clubs, say Chelsea in England, playing against small teams in England all the time. They want to see them play against Bayern Munich and Barcelona and the big teams. And they thought audiences around the world would really, really be interested in that. And they're probably right that they would be interested in that because the current competition, the Champions League, shows that they are. The thing that they've really forgotten is the local fans are still there, the the people who fill the stadiums. These clubs have been around for usually decades, if not centuries, in their local community and they're bastions of a, a local area. And those fans like the local rivalries that they have and they like the idea that they have to qualify for this uh, other, uh, new tournament. And that is where the backlash started. So who was behind it? The people who own these football clubs are billionaires. Almost every single one of these clubs is owned by a billionaire. Or at least, in, in the case of Real Madrid, run by a billionaire. And it's this kind of small clique of people, and they're all talking to each other about their big grand plan And they convince each other that this is a really good idea and that fans will swallow it. It turns out, though, that players, managers, fans, commentators, pundits, none of them were consulted. And they were under the misapprehension that the game actually belonged to them. They didn't think that this was fair, that 12 of these clubs should be able to be the self-appointed biggest clubs in the world and that they should break away and not have to qualify for the biggest competition in the world. It sounds like the sort of idea you have on a big night out when you're talking with your mates and you, you, you think you're just killing it in everything you do in life and then you wake up the next morning and go, what were, we, what were we even talking about? Well, this is where the money and power comes in. 
I mean, these guys, they spend so much time with each, with each other and other people like them. They were probably convinced that it was a really good idea. And, and it just shows a level of detachment from the rest of the world. This really got the goat of people. Like, they are, how, how dare you try and take the game away from us in the way we understand? It's not a fly-by-night idea. They've been working towards this for years, if not decades. This idea has been spinning around in the background for a very, very long time. And nobody would ever really believe that they would show the gumption to go ahead and try and launch this thing. And the moment they did, all hell broke loose. You know, politicians across Europe got involved. The British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said he would drop a legislative bomb, was his words, (laughs) on it. The governing bodies of football threatened sanctions, including saying that any players that were going to play in the Super League would not be able to play in their national team competitions, things like the World Cup, which, by the way, players really actually care about. And within 48 hours, the thing was dead. Uh, First of all, the the six English teams, all one by one in the course of three or four hours in a really chaotic night, they all pulled out. And the next day, most of the other teams pulled out. And the only ones that are left in it, uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, are kind of left on their own. Do you think this will have a long-term impact on the clubs that were involved, especially amongst their true traditional fans, now that they see them as sort of more cynical and money-making? Unfortunately, I'm cynical, even if I'm not um, (laughs) money-making, about this. I think fans... One of the reason why, uh, reasons why these owners thought the fans would swallow it is because they've swallowed a lot. Often they have embraced money in the game. The problem that happened here was that they were taking away something quite dear to them, was the idea of hope lower down. All those small teams who could hope one day through just really good performance, get up into the big leagues they were, they were trying to strip that away. And fans actually, turns out, really understood uh, their sport and didn't like it. The question is, where do the billionaires go now? The reason they wanted to do it is because if you, you know you're in the, the big tournament every year, you know how much money you're going to make every year, you know what your profits are going to be every year, and it makes your property even more valuable. In the United States, with the National Basketball Association, the NBA, or the National Football League, the NFL... Those clubs in the, that play there, they are very valuable things and they get, they get sold for billions and billions of dollars and precisely because they get to play in that competition all the time. So whoever owns it knows they're going to make money off it. And that's what the European Super League would have done. They were guaranteed profits forever. And actually the fans worked that out. So where do they go now that they can't get this? My guess is if we're very likely to be writing about the sale of these clubs in the coming years. But the one thing that seems like is just not going to be a goer is the idea that you can pull the carpet from under everybody else and you can always be in the tournament. You're still going to have to go out and win matches. And that's probably good for the way that football is run in Europe and around the world. So, Murad, if I've got this right, it all comes back to the, the place where you started this interview, the pyramid structure that... This Super League tried to do away with that structure because it would mean their teams, if they were always in this elevated competition, would have a, a more consistent revenue structure and essentially be, be more valuable as clubs. But the fans value the pyramid structure because that's what connects the top of the competition to the teams at the bottom. So 
it was a fight over the pyramid structure and the fans won. I think that's exactly right. And let's face it, modern football is all about money. If you can buy the best players, then you're always going to be on top. I think ultimately the fans have told the big owners there are limits to how far you can push us, and this is it. That was Murad Ahmed from the UK's Financial Times. Isn't it an incredibly dramatic, symbolic story, Annika, that from the grassroots fans in in small European cities through to these massive billionaires, that this game sort of touches everyone in different ways and the people at the top completely misread the people at the bottom that ultimately mattered more than they realised. As somebody that's a fifth-generation Collingwood supporter, I sort of can relate to it in some ways in that it's more than just the team you support. It unites your family. It brings together, you know, people and it has a huge history in your sort of life and your ancestry. So I think it's a huge misstep here and they completely missed that. They didn't even see the importance these clubs play in that sort of role in families. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, we're talking about married at first sight. We're going to speak to a former contestant and discuss why people love to hate it and hate to love it. Listener.